across the world, real estate agents are underachieving. They're missing out on millions of dollars in commissions. My name is Pat Hyben, and in the past 27 years, I've sold over 6,000 homes, selling over a billion dollars in real estate volume. My plan is to interview agents from across the world and help all agents create their destiny. Happy Friday, Rockstar Nation! Wow! Woo! What a Thursday, huh? I mean, after Wednesday's episode, number 110, with Tommy Sowers, our Facebook page caught fire. I mean, we haven't had that many comments since I started doing these 300 podcasts ago. If you don't know what I'm talking about, go back one to 310, which was Wednesdays, and listen to it. I'm going to read some of these uh, comments. Nick Raglan says, One question I didn't hear answered. Who takes the risk slash liability after the transaction? If someone is found to have been improper within the transaction, can the seller or buyer come back on the agent? Well, that's an easy question to answer. Yes, 100%. Yes. What uh, Nick is missing here is that they are a marketplace. You know, they are not a brokerage. So, it's just like Amazon.com, right? So if you go on Amazon and buy a power tool and you get shipped that power tool, you don't sue Amazon.com if it doesn't work. You send it back to whatever the tool, Fred's Tool Company, whoever you bought it from through Amazon. It's a marketplace. It's not a, the Amazon does not make tools, but you can go on Amazon and buy every single hammer, screwdriver, and an electric drill in the world, right? It's the same thing. It goes back to that broker, whether it's Remax, Century 21, KW, whatever. The broker is responsible, Nick. Stephen Robert Ricklin, never in a million years. Pat Hyben, never in a million years. Brenda Burst Wade, this just means the listing agent does both sides. I can see that, yeah. Can't be a pro agent and listen to this nonsense. The person who needs a lot of help thinks he needs no help. He is so poorly informed of the entire process. This guy has no clue. I can't believe you have such bunk on your podcast. Whoa. Sorry about that, Brenda. Okay, Rob Tucker. In the absence of value, price is an issue. In the absence of value, price is an issue. Really no different than the discount broker space that always sees an influx in a good market and goes away in a challenging market. Sounds like a similar model as help you sell brokers who brought people in different plans and kept adding on options to get back to the 5.7% average commission. Rob Tucker. And then Brenda Burris-Wade came back again. She says they are not struggling with what the value is, Rob. A great listing agent will end up with a train wreck because the buyer dictates what help he would like to pay for. He thinks the listing agent should do it all for free. So what he's saying is, or what Brenda's saying, <clears throat> which I totally agree with, like if, if you have a shitty buyer agent, you end up doing three times as much work as the listing agent. And so... 
if a buyer agent is doing this for 50 bucks, I can't imagine they're going to be a stellar buyer agent. Brenda has a very, very valid point. Now, some may say, well, sucks for the listing agent. That's the new game. You got to deal with the cards that you're dealt, right? If you are a big listing agent, you're going to have to deal with solo pro agents if it's successful. I don't know if they're going to be successful, but if they are, hey, well, that's the only option there, right? And then Rob shot back, I'm not talking about the value of the property, Brenda. I'm talking about this model in general. It's the same as any other discount broker, and they really provide no value since their value proposition is their fee and not the value of their services. Yeah, 100% of Rob. Yeah, I mean, it, it's a fee thing. Yeah, uh, I get it. He's not a discount broker. I get it. I get it. I get it. Will this model work? I don't know. I listened to it again in full, and I'm starting to get scared. Dave Miller says, you will have a bunch of part-time agents jump at this chance just to make a little money here and there. I don't get how the seller's going to change the co-op at will. What I do see is listing agents that are taking the whole thing. In their example, used on your podcast, Pat, if the buyer's co-op is $7,000, $7,000 will, will morph into a listing agent, $13,500, and give buyers 500 which the owners want part of the problem is this guy thinks he can tell how much you should make that's what's offensive on top of that he wants you to pay him out of that small fee he thinks he can capture all the buyers and sellers and force agents to use his service yeah uh, some of what you say is right and i understand it but some of what you say dave doesn't make sense in that you don't pay him you do not pay solo pro solo pro makes money from the advertisers from the advertisers who are advertising on the site just like amazon if you ad you can advertise on amazon by like again go back to power tools if you have a power tool and you want to pay money to amazon to make your power tool show up in the front you pay extra right if you want to have a big banner around your power tool you pay extra just like on google right where you google something and there's three in the right hand side that are paid for that you can click on you're also paying for that email so he's not making money off of this commission dave he's making money off of selling your email as the buyer who's paid the 50 bucks to say lowe's right there's you think there's a reason possibly why lowe's invested a million and a half bucks you think it's a coincidence hell no it's no coincidence it's because they're gonna sell you know the, whoever buys this house again back to tools tools locks whatever you know they get emails of everyone instantly within 24 hours who bought a house in the last who looked at a house in the last 24 hours that's worth a million and a half bucks don't you think they can send them coupons send them hey we got a special at your neighborhood Lowe's or whatever it is, right? Yeah, title companies, termite inspections, Christofala. I remember talking to cab companies owners right around the same time that Uber came out. They laughed. They said it would never work. Sound familiar? The real estate industry is ripe for disruption. Between this guy and Zillow, it is probably a matter of 
when rather than if. Believe me, I hope that I am wrong. There's Chris, there's Chris you know, just being honest. You know, he's, he's hoping he's wrong, but I kind of agree with Chris, you know what I mean? I mean, I don't, I don't think it's a bad idea to start storing money away like a freaking mouse storing money in a little hole in the house. I mean, storing cheese or crumbs in a little hole in your wall. I don't think it's a bad time for us as real estate agents to save 50% rather than 5 or 10%. Because if this does come down the pike or something like it comes down the pike, agents making $100,000, $200,000 doing the same amount of work are going to be making 30, 40, 50, maybe. I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. I'm like Chris. I'm like Mr. Dufala. I hope I'm wrong. And then Brenda is on here. Don't give this guy the traction by even listening to this podcast. This is not the disruption. They may there may be one coming, but this is so bogus. The people who invested should have talked to a great agent first. The only thing served by this idea is his bank account. The buyer isn't served, the seller isn't served, and the listing agent isn't served. It really doesn't have any viability. I love the Pot Hyben podcast, but pick a different one to listen to. You know, again, Brenda, you, you have some good points, but the one thing that you probably didn't hear him say, but he did say it, that, that the 50% partner or his main partner is, is a REMAX agent and a successful REMAX agent. Chris Dufala, I listen to Pat religiously. My only point was that the industry is ripe and we shouldn't be sheep. Most agents are also in denial. Rob Tucker says, eyes wide open. Gloria, Gloria Camiso. It appears that the agent's value is diminished and no mention of the worth of experience, knowledge, support, guidance, transaction management, negotiating, etc. that a buyer agent offers. Don't assume all agents are worthless. Whew, I don't know. Is he assuming all agents are worthless? I don't think he's assuming all agents are worthless, but I think he's assuming all agents are worth $50 a showing. I can guarantee you that's what he's thinking. Chris Gonzalez says, uh, I feel this program totally promotes laziness. It is eliminating the entrepreneurial spirit. And I can see how this guy stems from the Obama administration. <laughs> Makes all the sense in the world. <laughs> yeah, he does have a government background. He was in the military. That's, that's interesting. Okay, and Russell Shaw. What's up, Russell? <laughs> I'd like to do a Russell Shaw voice. Contrary to all this. No, I can't do it. Contrary to all this silly blather about market disruptors. What changed? The residential real estate industry was a 100% commission concept. Well, Russell would know about this. He, he's been advertising his no-hassle listing for decades, discounted commissions, successfully, I might add. First, it was realty executives, and then Remax took the 100% commission worldwide. It's the 100% knockoff companies that charge really, really low fees to agents that have and are transforming the industry and and you know there are more and more of these companies popping up where you're just paying like a $50 fee or $100 fee or whatever so I do see more of that uh, I think I do that's my perception 
the so-called market disruptors only change the bank balance of the dopes that invest in them. I'll repeat that. The so-called market disruptors, i.e. Solo Pro, Tommy Sowers, his partner who's a Remax agent, the so-called market disruptors only change the bank balance of the dopes that invest in them. Zillow has not actually changed the industry. They have changed who gets the buyer side, but they do not cause any house to sell. Yeah, that's all Zillow did. But again, we lost the MLS for buyers, right? You know, we used to get the buyer side. If you're the listing agent, you used to get, be able to double dip all day long. Forget about it now because the buyer side is, 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 is stolen and given to another agent. So the chances of you double dipping are so, so small nowadays because of that. But okay, so I'll go on. Russell goes on. And since National Association of Realtors sold us all down the river a long time ago, what real difference does it make to us if Realtor.com or Zillow wins the battle? The thing that has and will continue to impact our industry is to shift from broker-centric control to agent-centric control. Okay, so broker-centric obviously is the brokers being in charge, the broker's best interest at all times, the brokers controlling their agents and, and putting themselves first. I'm, I'm lacking a better way to explain this as, as goes to agent-centric, which is all about the agent. What's in the best interest of the agent? Let's try to make the agent the most amount of money possible, and, and with that, money will flow to us, the broker. So from broker-centric to agent-centric of commission amounts. Okay, so he's taking another level and saying uh, from broker-centric to agent-centric, which is just what he's kind of saying with Remax and with uh, Realty Executives is the 100%, right? So commission amounts are more beneficial, 100%, are much more beneficial to the real estate agent than they are to the broker as they were before. When I first got in the biz in 1987, I mean, it was all 50-50. I mean, that was broker-centric commissions. That's where everybody was. If you had a 60-40, you were a hot shot. That's why the we'll do nothing for, we will do nothing for less companies have not and never changed anything. No matter how many newsworthies, newsworthy and exciting things they seem to put into the press. Oh, Russell's always good for a great comment, a great long angst-filled comment. Thanks for that, Russell. And, I, and there's more, guys. I don't, I can't read them all. You know, some some people have, have gone on Facebook privately and been pissed that I had them on there. Well, I'm sorry. I wanted to have somebody. Everybody needs to know what's going on. I don't think we should just stay in the dark, right? I mean... I mean, I mean, if this company is coming out and getting a Super Bowl ad, don't you want to know who this company is, what they're about? And and there were so many misconceptions. I mean, everyone th thinks they still think that it's like a help you sell. You don't get it. It's not a freaking help you sell. It is not a broker. It is far from a broker. So it, it's been interesting. Keep commenting. I love this stuff. You know, most of the comments are on, on the Facebook. Pat Hyben interviews real estate rock stars. Closed group. You just type that in group. Not page. The page is like an advertiser. It's confusing as shit on, on Facebook. But page is just like an ad. Uh, the group is a, um, there's like 7,000 members, 9,000 members, something like that. And you just go in there and we'll let you in right away once you request it. It's a closed group. And we just want to make sure no spammers or, or whatever get in. And by the way, on Facebook, if you want to friend me, you can on P 
Patrick Hyben, the name that my mother calls me when she's pissed at me, Patrick Hyben. Pat is all filled up. Patrick Hyben. Just go there and then you can uh, communicate me with, with me direct. Hopefully you won't communicate with me like some of these other people have in a, a spirited manner that was negative. But I did get one a cool email I wanted to talk about from Josiah Murder. Sounds kind of like a, a rap name almost. Josiah Murder. How'd you like that name? Anyways, Josiah Murder. Hope I'm not botching how you say that, but that's what it sounds like. He says, hey, Pat, awesome episodes lately. Can't wait for the one with badass Adam Bailey. By the way, he's a badass. Quick question. If you were to start over in any market with the knowledge that you have now, which market would you choose and why would it still have been Baltimore, Maryland? I thought about this and my answer is I, I've been lucky. I mean, Maryland has been a huge state as far as real estate values and people moving in that have more money than the people moving out. That's how you know you're in a good market. When the people moving in make more than the people moving out, stay there, buddy right? That means something's drawing them there. And that's what happened. You know, our government grew so big and our defense systems grew so big. And Maryland is just a defense hub. I mean, every other neighbor of mine was uh, worked for a, a subcontracting for a defense company for the federal government, IT company. And then of course we had the FBI, the CIA, the, you know, NSA, the you know, all these companies, tons of them, right? Long story short, yeah, I would have, I, I think that would have been a great pick. I would have never figured that that would have happened, but I think that would have been a great pick. And I think that what you want to do, Josiah, is go to a, an area where there's a decent average sale price, a vibrant life for you, because I can tell from your picture, you're a young guy, a vibrant social life probably, or, you know, cool stuff. So you're going to like it there. And think to yourself, exactly that. Are the people moving in making more money than the people moving out? Are the people buying the homes making more money than the people selling the homes? Well, if that's the case, then values are going to rise and it's more of a seller's market. And I do believe you should be a seller's agent first and foremost. Listings are the name of the game. Focus on listings, Josiah. So if you can go to a town where you think you can be a listing agent, go there. If you're going to go there thinking I'm a buyer's agent, I'm sure there's a better choice. You know, um, so think of about it that way. If you can succeed, if you feel like you can succeed as a listing agent, I would go there. That's what I would do. As far as naming off those cities, I don't know. Listen to episode about 10 ago, Kathy Fetke. I think she was like episode 300 or so. Just go to hybendigital.com and type in Kathy F. But with Kathy, we played bubble gum or bubble. <laughs> and she said, what? areas she thinks are in a bubble and what areas are bubble gum tasty i would probably go to a bubble gum area before i went to a bubble you know might not look as enticing at first but why get caught in a bubble and and lose everything that you've earned go ride the wave go ride a wave somewhere josiah anyways guys today's episode is great i love the passion of this guy. I love his excitement level. I love, I, I wouldn't necessarily call him an immigrant because he came here when he was a kid, but it reminds me of the mentality, what, what Brian Buffini calls the immigrant mentality, which is where people come to this country and the streets are paved with gold in their minds. And they're just like, man, I'm going to make all the money that I can here because I'm allowed to. 
and it reminds me of that mentality and i think everyone should have that mentality so i hope you enjoy it hope everybody has a super weekend and i will see you on monday okay rockstar nation boy we have a special guest today I have Thatch Wind on the phone from Seattle, Washington, and Thatch has done what everyone listening should, in my opinion, but I know I'm right, do. Okay, Thatch is the man. He's a referral from Jeff Quinton. He's an old Mike Ferry guy from back in the days with Greg Harrelson, Jeff Quinton, a lot of these other guys we've had on here, and he essentially did what I did, right? He was a real estate agent who kicked ass and became a real estate investor, and he's still highly involved in everything real estate, and we've got some really cool things to talk about. So without further ado, Thatch, welcome to Pat Hyben Interviews, Real Estate Rockstars. Thank you. Thank you, my friend. I appreciate being here, man. So Thatch, why don't you tell our audience a little bit about yourself so they get to know you better? Sure. So... I was born in Vietnam in 1970. My dad worked for the U.S. military in Vietnam, and uh, he heard that the communists is taking over Saigon um, in two days. And so um, we evacuated. My mom and dad, my four brothers, my mom was pregnant, my sister at the time. And uh, we basically uh, left on the last plane out of Vietnam and landed in San Diego, lived in the homeless shelter there for a month or so. Then we got shipped up to Seattle, Washington, stayed in the homeless shelter there for a few months. And then finally got sponsored and lived with a gentleman named Charles Zettler and his mom over in uh, an area called Sumner, Washington, which is about 45 minutes south of Seattle. And, um, you know, we started from the, 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 the bottom. You know, we was on welfare and food bank food. And when we came here from Vietnam and we didn't speak English, and um, we just grew up in the area called Rainier Valley in Seattle, Washington, and pretty much I just worked my way up, went to school, and um, did okay in school, and, um, you know, when I got out of high school, went to college to fix aviation airplane with my older brother, and didn't really had a passion for that, but I graduated, and, and then one of my friends was saying to me, I should go into real estate because you, you have a natural uh, a sales uh, you know, in you, and uh, I didn't know that, and so I thought it was pretty cool. I thought, hey, you know what, making 7% uh, on a $100,000 house, 7000 on a commission check, I didn't know there was such a thing as splits back then, and uh, I got excited. <laughs> now that check, I figured, hey, I can do that, and I got into real estate in 1991, and that's how I started my uh, my whole life from Vietnam until uh, 1991, wow. and then in 1994, I didn't sell any home in 1991, 92, 93. I did like maybe three homes a year. And then 1994, I met Mike Ferry. And, um, you know, that's where, you know, myself and, you know, all my friends from, you know, Jeff Quinton and Greg Harrison and Joe D. Raphael and, you know, all the guys that you interviewed before. There's all my longtime friend. And um, we were pretty much young guys. And uh, I was knocking on the door. I was knocking on 100 doors a day, Pat, for five hours a day for 10 years straight. That's how I got my business. Wow. Let me let me slow this down so everybody could hear it. So you're saying when you start out in the business for the first five years, you knocked on 100 doors a day. That was your job. First 10 years. Whoa. First 10 years, right? You knocked on 100. Like that was your job. 
my job. Hundred doors a day. What and what? What did you say when you knocked on those doors? I just had the script that Mike gave Toby. You know, uh, hi, this is Thatch from John L. Scott. We just recently sold a home down the street from you, three bedroom, two baths, over four hundred thousand. We know when someone sells a home in the area, usually a couple more sell again. And I was wondering, any thoughts on when you might sell yourself? And then I just start the conversation with that. Boom, just like Boom. that. It. And uh, and that's how I just earned my business. I, I didn't, you know, I was only when I started real estate. I was 21 years old. I met Mike when I was 24, so I was 24 years old. I didn't have a big database, so I earned my business from the street, just you know, one deal at a time from people that said, "Wow, you're a hardworking young man." Yeah, go ahead and sell my house, and that's how I just built my database from there, one by one. Hmm. And okay, so now we fast forward. You know, your early 2000s. How many houses were you selling then? I was selling my peak. I was selling about 150 homes a year in 2007. And, um, you know, I had one assistant at the time and a part-time buyer agent. And that was it. My wife, myself, part-time buyer agent, and then one assistant. And we wow. were doing about 150 homes a year. Your profit margin must have been massive. Oh, yeah. You know, it's, uh, you know, I'm a, I believe in net profit, not gross profit. <laughs> so what was your net? What was your gross, first of all, on that? I was doing about probably nine hundred thousand a year. I was probably taking home like you know eighty percent of the money. Yeah, so you were taking home seven fifty, probably you know roughly, and selling real estate. That's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. Okay, so so you peak out. You're making seven hundred fifty thousand dollars on your tax return a year. Two thousand seven. Obviously, some what, did you predict the market was going to crash, or was it just kind of luck that you decided to start doing other things then? Actually, it was uh, probably one of my biggest financial breakdown, but also I think it's a blessing also. But uh, at that time, I had a lot of great you know, mentor around me and real estate has always been a passion for me. And so in my early, you know, probably 2003 or four, every time I had enough commission check, I would just buy me a house and I would just start buying rental house one by one. I was buying like two of them, three of them a year and just holding them. And then when I got to 2007, I was already buying houses and I was already building houses. And I decided in 2007, I'm going to go out and build a um, high rise apartment building in Seattle. Mm. So I took on this big project with a friend of mine. We did a 251 unit condominium site in downtown Seattle for like $50 million. And we built it and um, we caught the, when we got done at the end of 2008, we caught the tsunami toward the end and literally if i was six months earlier i could have sold it and made about 10 million bucks but i caught it at the end so basically by the time i sold it i literally just broke even didn't make no profit and i had to take a haircut in my investment and i make no money the whole time and in my residential business i have put it on the shelf just getting referral only and that was probably one of my hardest time because i have just put you know so much money into this project and so much energy focus and uh, I was leaking probably, you know, literally a hundred grand a month on payments. And I had to suck that up every month until I sold the building. And um, but that was a big lesson for me, you know, and and I made it out of there. You know, a lot of my investors got their money back. And, you know, that was probably one of my worst time financially, but one of the best time because I had so much credibility from all my investors that today, a lot of them today are investing me in other projects today. 
Wow. Well, that's good. I mean, I think it's a positive story in that you were able to pay your investors back because, you know, I knew a lot of investors and a lot of developers and, and people like yourself that, you know, didn't pay anybody back that just bailed, right? And and that's capitalism for you. That's the dark side of capitalism. It happens. So it's it's good that you preserve their capital. I could have easily gave up, Pat. You should have seen the, what the bank put me through the ringer, man. Like so many ringer. I could have just gave up and said, you know what? You can take the building back. You know what I mean? I don't care, right? Right. But, you know what I mean? Every loophole they gave me, I knew that because I had 15 of my friends slash investor. And so I can easily give the building back, but I wasn't going to give it back. I was going to basically do whatever it takes to get this thing ready and make the payment so I can put it on the market. And at that time in 2000 and, uh, 2010, we held it all the way to 2010. And that's when the apartment building sale was starting to get hot. And so we put it on the market. We had like probably, you know, 13 offer and then we sold it for 50 million bucks and all the investors got pretty much most of the money back and um, they already checked off on their list that they lost their money you know what i mean yeah 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 they Amen. wrote it off on their taxes i've done that too on yeah so, some stuff i'm involved in yeah so it, it was a blessing you know what i mean that, that i learned that lesson in that market and so today i know that market's coming around again and I'm very cautious of it, and I'm very smart about it this time. <laughs> okay, so so it sucked the life out of you financially and work-wise. You put your real estate sales business, pretty much killed it. You didn't make money. You just lived off savings and that sort of thing for several years. You come out of this thing, right? 2010, whatever. You know, It's been a hell of a couple of years for you, but you did the right thing. And so then what happens? You take a nap, so and then what happens? <laughs> And then I woke up and I said, I should have never stopped my residential business because that was a great cash cow business yes. with no personal guarantee, no overhead. That was low-hanging fruit. And I saw, I see so many of my real estate friends sometimes, they just stop selling real estate because they want to go into the world developing. They don't realize there's a lot of risk that come along with that. And so today, you know, starting this year, I'm going to rebuild my residential team and my goal in the next five years to get a team of 50 agents out there selling, you know, 50 homes a year and, you know, doing a thousand transactions a year. And to me, we get the right people in place running it. It's no different than a, a great apartment building giving me a lot of cash flow. Yeah. You know? So, and, and I agree with you 100%. I mean, in 2010, I sold my business to my partner, Mike. And at the time, you know, I was so drained because I went to a, a similar situation, not as tough as yours. And I said... I said, I don't want it. You know, I want to do something else. I, I, I had my book written. I was going on book tour. But he actually said to me, he said, I want you to be involved. You know, I, I don't want you to just give it to me. So so we ended up working on a deal where I still get, you know, 50% of the profits and he runs it. And uh, now today I look at that was one of the smartest things or luckiest things that ever happened to me because, you know, made a couple hundred grand on it last year. And I'm, I'm you know, so glad that I did that today. So let's see. Okay, so are you investing now from 2010 to 2016? Are you buying houses? What are you doing? So basically today I, I oversee my residential team. And then I have a division right now that we buy uh, houses, uh, fixer houses, and either we rehab them, either we sell them, or I keep them as rental properties. And then I have another vision that I have a superintendent that runs. We build modern houses in Seattle and townhouses. And then I have another division where my other uh, partner, we built uh, apartment building. We built these things called micro housing. They're apartments, 
but the average unit is about 250 square feet. They're like, you know, little loft like you see in New York City or in Asia. That's very common. And so ultimately, really, what I'm doing um, is everything that I'm doing from selling real estate to uh, flipping houses and building new construction, Pat, is just really to build my passive income. And so my goal right now is to uh, hit a thousand units here in the next two or three years. Um, and then, of course, when I get there, who knows, you know, I just bump it off. So really, just to me, it's fun now because I just want to build cash flow, cash flow, cash flow. My single minded focus now is building cash flow because the biggest thing I learned from that crash is cash flow. So how many uh, houses that you do you hold that you hold and rent out? How many houses do you have now? I have a combination. I have about probably 50 single family houses and then I got the rest of them about probably over 150 plus apartment units around town and commercial buildings. Okay. Awesome. And and so obviously so does the cash flow from those pay all your personal bills? Yes. Yeah. Yes. And that's so you are financially free, which is where everybody wants to do. And every, and everything from here, right, is just fun. Here's it's fun. You know what I mean? I got, you know, I mean, today, you know what I mean? I like building companies. You know what I mean? I like building real estate companies. And, you know, I have a whole bunch of uh, apartment building right now in plans and permit stage. And, you know, these micro unit housing, they're, they're such a, it's, a it, it's geared toward affordable housing. And so I love doing affordable housing and, uh, and that market right there is bulletproof, you know, when the market slowed down. <laughs> so you're saying it's bulletproof because, because it's cheap, right? right? It's inexpensive, but is there any fear that, well, yeah, you know, that might work in Asia where they're used to, you know, parts of Asia where they're used to stacking 15 people in a two bedroom flat we're here we're spoiled and we expect more space what 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 are your thoughts on that is it possible that you would build these micro units and people would be like no i ain't i'm not I'm oh not. yeah it's probably the hottest thing now right now it's a new thing now in america in high density area la san francisco you know we built these in very high density area like if, uh, if we were building this in seattle it would be very close to downtown and they're very brand, they're brand new modern buildings. And we already done a whole bunch of them already. And every time we build them, we pretty much get them mostly leased out before the building even get done. The waiting list. I mean, a typical studio rent for like maybe 1800 bucks in Seattle. And we rent ours for 1000 bucks. And so the $500 difference, I mean, people work at Starbucks, the workforce people. You know what I mean? To them... They, they don't want to take uh, take drive into work. They want to just be able to walk out of the apartment and walk down the street to all the shops and all the restaurants and work. And those are the demographic that we actually get. And there's a lot of them. And we build most of the stuff in the area called Urban Village. And so that's where it works. You can't do them in the suburb because people in the suburb expect bigger units. But we do them in city and the high density and they're trendy. They're, they're green built building and um, they're affordable. And, um, you know, it's either you're going to go to a high high rent apartment building or you're going to go to a brand new affordable apartment building with less square footage and america is going to get to a point where they will sacrifice land and sacrifice square footage for affordability because especially for location and when you go to asia you're going to see it's very similar to that europe is very similar to that uh it just you're just running out of land in the super high density area close into downtown seattle right. anywhere if you want to be where the action is pretty much because at the end of the day, it's kind of like if you think about it like a hotel room, right? You don't go to, say, Las Vegas or Disney World or whatever 
and spend the whole time in the hotel room. So if you're living in a big city, you know, you want to, the reason you're living there is because you want to be in the action. You want to be out eating. You want to be out hanging out. You want to be out meet, you know, doing stuff in the city. So you really don't want to be like locked up in your room anyways. Right. Is that the idea? Idea. And all the units all furnished. All they got to do, Pat, is bring their laptop and their backpack and lay down and go to sleep. (laughs) So is it like one big room, Thatch? Nope. It's just a studio. It's like a hotel. So a hotel is typically about 300 square feet, right? So these are all of them have the bathroom, kitchen, everything in there, right? Instead of a typical 500 square feet, 600 square foot studio, they're 250 square foot studio. It's basically like a hotel room, and you got your shower. It's like almost like a dorm dormitory, but no, because you have a kitchen and a and a shower. But that's all you got, right? And then if you want some fresh air, or whatever, dude, you get on the elevator, right? You go outside. That's that's kind of how it works. And and so this is working well, huh? It's it's part of the it's it's new sliced bread, man, in uh, in investment, you know. Because the beautiful thing is that what happens if you get a three hundred, if you get a six hundred square foot studio, and the guy's renting it for. $1,600, and if you're 300 square feet, your rent doesn't drop proportional to the square footage. Does that make sense? Yeah, 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 right. Wouldn't go from 1600 to $1,800 because it's half the square footage. So you go from 600 square feet to 300 square foot, and you're paying 1000 or 1100 And so as a dollar per square foot, as an investor, you're winning way more than traditional apartments. Hmm. That's amazing. Now, let me ask you this. Is, is, do you think this is a trend only in the cities, only where the population is very dense? Or do you think that from a overall, this is a big question, but do you think that overall, right, people are going to start wanting less space? I read this study about how even in the, like the 1940s, 1950s, the 60s, you know, a big house, right? If you were like really rich, a big house was like 2,000 square feet, right? right. 3,000 square feet with a pool. And then it wasn't until the 80s or whatever, people started building these Mac Daddy mansions that just kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And the, the millennials, the people, the kids now are not really into all that excess. Nope. Nope. And that they're going to, in that market, and I'm stretching here, but that whole high-end market is going to collapse in a sense in the decades to come. Think about that. What's your thought on that? I agree. I mean, I built spec homes also, okay? And I got a lot of friends in Seattle built spec homes. In Seattle, you're a Mac Daddy, you got a 5,000, 6,000, 8,000, 10,000 square foot home, right? And a lot of builders, before the crash in 2008, they were building houses that big. Today, all the builders around Seattle, even in the high-end neighborhood, they're only building houses as big as 4,000 square feet because, and before people used to drive Suburbans, now they drive hybrids, right? So it's already going that direction. And today we built a lot of houses in Seattle and uh, people today, they will trade driving us in the, from a suburb into the city and live in townhouses that are 1,500, 1,800, 2,000 square feet townhouses attached. And just, you know, get rid of all the cars and just have one or two cars for a husband and wife and they live in city and more and more that's happening. That's why now, now the new thing now in Seattle is called hyper local, right? Hyper local. What do you mean? And meaning that, uh, let's say you live in a, an area and where, and, and in that area, there's a, there's a community where they have shops and restaurants and everything. Everybody want to live local to those area and they want to walk 
they want to go down and eat, they want to entertain. So everything is so very hyper local. Everything is, you know, very exciting in the little small community. So it's not a big thing anymore. Everybody's going to the small community. You know, I want to live in an area called Capitol Hill, right? That's where all the things happening. And then the area called Ballard. And each one of those cities in Seattle, those are hyper local area where they built restaurants and buses and coffee shops and you know everything around there so people don't ever have to drive nowhere they just walk everything everything is walking ability now like they call walk score right yeah the walk score yeah so everything is built around walk score so the higher the walk score the better so when you build houses or apartment building especially affordable apartment building in a walk score of 90 plus you're winning because that's where all the people is at and they all want to live there they don't care for cars a lot of people live in all apartments. They don't even have cars. They take the transit and they take the buses and they take, you know, uh, uh, and they ride bikes. Well, so- well, yeah, I mean, and wait, and, and this is coming. This is reality, guys. This, you know, wait till the cars are self-driven, right? I've seen some stuff where it, it's cheaper, obviously, if, especially in the cities to take Uber, you know, or take Lyft, you know, everywhere you go than it is to actually have a car and pay for parking and pay for gas and, and pay for the actual car itself. It's significantly cheaper. And then when the self-driving cars come out, you wouldn't even need a car. You just hop in the car and they take you where you got to go and they drop off. Right. The car, you won't have to pay a driver, quote unquote. So therein lies a, a massive price reduction in the cost of a ride, you know, yeah. so it, it'll make more sense. Wow. That's amazing. Now, do you think we'll see those, whatever you're calling them, micro living places in, in other cities? Are we already starting to see them? I don't, I'm from Baltimore. I don't recall seeing them down there yet. Do you think we'll start seeing them? I started micro unit with a partner of mine named Jim Potter in Seattle. He started about four or five years ago. And then um, he started in Seattle. He branched off, did a couple of them in Portland. Then he partnered up with somebody, did one in Jersey. Okay. And then he did one in Oakland. And then he passed away about a year ago. And so my vision now, Pat, is to do micro units all across the United States. Yeah, I got some buddies that do development of apartment buildings in, in Philadelphia. And I know some players in the Baltimore area as well. So, you know, maybe we should talk offline. Maybe we can, we can be the first to market. I don't know. That's hot. Matter of fact, I had, uh, I don't know, you know, my good friend, his name is Ron Potoski, my friend Ender LK, they all Mike Ferry friends, Ender from Vancouver, Ron from Austin, they all flew in and they, I gave them a tour of the micro in Seattle. They were like, oh man, this work in Austin. Right. And anywhere right now, anywhere in the high density area where it's expensive inside uh, those cities and you built a apartment building geared towards affordability, you're going to win because affordability is the biggest conversation right now around housing in America. And if you're a couple, it's even more affordable, right? Because you're splitting it. And, you know, the big thing now is, you know, they might be paying for a one bedroom or two bedroom or three bedroom, but cramming them all in there with roommates here, they actually have more privacy. So which they want, you know, you'd want at that age. You got it. You very, got it. Very interesting. So last year on back to your sales business last year, you told me you sold 50 houses, but you didn't actually really do anything. You just flipped uh, all, all these leads to agents and took a referral fee. Yes. So I have agent in my office that have been knowing me for a long time. And so anytime a buyer calls in and then uh, they, they will call it and I would just refer them the same, Hey, my agent uh, on my team will basically help you with this. And then basically when I give it to them, they get, you know, we split 60, 40, 60, them, 40, me. And uh, they will do most of the, uh, do all the deals for me and sell out. I do the same thing, 50, 50. And so I did about 50 deals, you know, didn't do much of it. I made about 500 grand, you know what I mean? In uh, commission. And with a cell phone. Basically all you had was a, your, your overhead was a cell phone 
taking the calls, talking to the people. Thanks for being referred to me. And then you just kind of just referred them out with a 40% referral fee. And then I set it up so I put it back into my database and give them a referral. But this is why I'm excited. I'm going to take that model. I'm going to build agents on the team and have them go out there and prospect and do everything. And then, you know, be the same thing. I'm going to train them, inspire them, empower them. And then they out there selling. And now the team is selling, you know, that five year down the road, a thousand transaction. Right. And <laughs> I, I love it. That's how do you get how'd you get 50 people to get closed on? You know, I, I'm like I said, I did the same thing you did, but I don't get 50 leads that I can refer in to Mike. So what are you doing to nurture, you know, them and to build a? What are you doing with your database to get 50 referrals that paid you like that? All right. You know, that's a good question. My good friend, Matthew Ferry, okay, him and I and a two other friend of ours, we wrote a book called The Gift. Okay. So if you'll go to the website called givethegifttoday.com. And Matthew and I used to go out there and do a lot of public speaking together. And we used to teach them how to go out there and give the gift to every person to come in contact with, especially their client. And the gift is a four-step process. And how it works, Pat, is that when you meet your client or friend, whoever, step one is you connect deeply with them, meaning get interested in them. That's a rare thing to do for a human being. And when you can connect with them, step two is you find out what's important to them or what they're working on. And then step three is see how you can contribute to them and move that down the field farther down for them. And then step four, you follow up and then you watch the miracle happen. And so what I do, Pat, is I'm a big believer that if you do a good job and you really, really take care of your client at the deepest level, instead of going wide with the database, go deep with the database, then they become your advocate, supporter, believer, and followers. Okay. And so what I do is every one of my my clientele, I try to get to know them and connect with them more on a personal level and find out what are they working on right now, what's important to them, and then see how I can contribute to them and help them move that, whatever they're working on, down the football field farther down. When you do that, you really are making a big difference in human lives. And in return, they become your advocate. And so, of course, they want to help you do what you know whatever business you're running. And so that's been my secret sauce basically is – giving the gift to my database and people I know in the community. That's great. That's awesome. Well, I love it. I love everything that you've said. I love what you have done with your life. And I think that uh, all realtors and real estate agents listening, you know, need to be more like you because I think that, again, we do not want to be calling Fizbo's at 85 <laughs> years old, right? That I know that. So listen, buddy, thanks so much for coming on the show. It's been uh, great. You've offered some great meat and potatoes. I'm going to put a link to what Thatch talked about today. I'm going to put a link to his book, The Gift. I'm going to put a bunch of show notes up at hybendigital.com backslash Thatch. So hybendigital.com backslash Thatch and all will be there. Thatch, thanks so much for coming on the show. Is there anything you want to leave our audience with before we sign off? Yeah, one last thing. The level of your success and happiness is in direct proportion to the number of people you serve selflessly. And that's the law of contribution. Wow. That is deep. Thank you, my brother. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I hope you have enjoyed this session of Real Estate Rockstars. I'm Pat Hyben, and I appreciate you spending time tuning in for some rock-solid advice. I encourage you to take action on something that you have connected with. 
These insights, along with goal setting, will help carry you to achieving your destiny. Visit hybendigital.com for resources, how-tos, ebooks, and so much more. Also, reach out to us on Twitter. My handle is at Pat Hyben. And don't forget, Rockstar Nation, keep rocking. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.